The Courage to Lead, episode 154. You're listening to the IB4E Coaching Podcast. Brought to you by IB4E Coaching, business coaching for executives, entrepreneurs, and small business professionals. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com. Hey, Coach Arlen here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you guys are having a phenomenal week. I'm having a great week, and I'm excited to introduce you to my guest today. Please help me welcome Anne Steele, a champion of elevating humanity through business and the founder and CEO of Steele Strategies. Anne Steele has a history in the consulting and federal government industries and is passionate about improving workplace communities. Anne specializes in management consulting, facility portfolio management, and workspace solutions in the government and commercial sectors. Anne engages her clients by thriving on collaboration, creating innovative solutions, and recognizes the tremendous value that people make to any organization or business. She sits on the board of directors of Conscious Capitalism in Washington, D.C., which strives to elevate humanity through business. She has a Master of Public Administration from Georgetown University and a Bachelor of Science in Civil and Environmental Engineering from Brigham Young University. And welcome to the show. Thank you, Harlan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, no worries. I'm glad we could uh, get this arranged. I've been excited to uh, have you on the on the podcast and stuff. So, degrees in civil en- civil engineering and environmental engineering, and a master in public administration. That's that's pretty good. Is that? Did you know as a kid that that's what you wanted to do? Did you start off like that, or? No, not really. Um, you know, as a kid, I actually wanted to become a pediatrician. Uh, so when I started off in college, my freshman year, I actually had declared my declared myself a biochemistry major in the hopes that, you know, I'd go to medical school, I think. <laughs> um, that didn't go so well. Um, yeah, that first chemistry class that we had to take just, uh, you know, I, I thought chemistry was like amazing in high school. And then in college, it was just beyond me. (laughs) So I quickly realized I needed to change courses. Um, After a bit of deliberation, um, not much, but a little bit of deliberation, I settled on civil and environmental engineering. So nice. Very cool. Yeah, I've heard some people say they get into chemistry because they think that's what they really want to do in the first couple classes. Like, nope. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure I selected like the best option in terms of, you know, like a level of difficulty. (laughs) (laughs) There could be worse. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I want to come back and talk about that, uh, how you your degrees kind of prepared you for the role you're in now, what you do, how you help your your clients, everything like that. But before we get started, I've got 10 questions that I ask every one of my guests. Um, Listeners know these are the questions from the TV show Inside the Actor Studio, where host James Lipton asks these questions of his Hollywood guests from TV, film, and stage. And I figure if they're good enough for the Hollywood elite, they're certainly good enough for my guests. So, Anne, if you're ready, I've got 10 questions. I'm ready. Question number one, what is your favorite word? Oh, thrive. Good job. What is your least favorite word? Uh. Not a word, probably something like like I can't or somebody giving up easily. Absolutely. All right. What turns you on? 
Ooh. Um, just like collaboration, people who are genuine and real, uh, who kind of skip over or refuse to do all of the pleasantries. I just like to get real really quick. Good job. All right. What turns you off? Oh, prob- definitely the opposite. I am not an extrovert. So anything that has to do with, um, with like the, the pleasantries and the, the very topical things, I like to really dig in. Okay. Um, what sound or noise do you love? Ooh, two things. Um, one is my kids getting along and saying things like thank you please to each other <laughs> without my encouragement and the second is the sound of crashing waves in the ocean mm, absolutely all right what sound or noise do you hate the sound of silverware scraping against teeth okay mm. <laughs> got the willies just thinking about that one. yeah okay all right um, question seven, what is your favorite curse word? Um, it's reserved only for special occasions, uh, which would be mother ducker. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question eight, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Ooh, no, as a kid, my, as a, as a young child, um, I remember going to the grocery store with my mom. And I always wanted to be a grocery store bagger. Um, so the only store that they really do bagging, I think, expertly these days is probably Trader Joe's. So I'd probably work at Trader Joe's. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. What profession would you not like to do? Oh, definitely anything in, um, in like, food service that would require me to like stay up late or get up early. I, you know, like just have irregular hours. I would hate that. And then having to just be pleasant all of the time would be <laughs> I think, difficult for me to do. All right. Final question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Come on in. There's a place waiting for you. Awesome. Come on in. All right. And we're going to come back and talk about how you got your start, how your degrees have helped prepare you for the work that you're currently doing, what that work is and who you're working with and how you're helping them. Um, And then at some point, we're going to talk about courage and leadership. Okay. Right. All right. Listeners, we're talking about that and more right after this. So stick with us. Imagine having a trusted group of CEOs at your disposal. Imagine having your very own peer advisory team who could work you through the problems and questions in your business before you had to make those difficult decisions. Imagine you had a group of advisors that had your back and met for the sole purpose of making you successful in your business. What would you be able to accomplish then? Well, you don't have to imagine anymore. You can have that and more when you join my Business Success Mastermind Group. Join my Business Success Mastermind Group today. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. And I'm back with my guest, Ann Steele. Ann, thanks again for taking time out of your busy day. And you are busy. You've got a lot of stuff going on, don't you? A few things, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
So uh, we talked earlier about your uh, civil and environmental engineering, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and you've worked for some great companies too, uh, including time at NASA, Goddard Space Center, mm -hmm. uh, the Flight Center there in Maryland. What did you do there? So what I did there, it takes most people by surprise. Um, I actually worked on a research project that um, the actual research took place in the Brazilian Amazon basin. Um, so it was a research project funded by NASA under their biospheric and atmospheric sciences directorate. Um, and they were studying carbon and trace gas um, fluxes within uh, in the Amazon forest. And then obviously in um, like pasture lands, uh, lands that have been converted to pasture. Um, and what I, my role in that was working in the, the project management office um, where we really served as like, as the management and administrative arm for all of the researchers, uh, mostly from Brazil and the United States, most, a lot of major universities, but also um, some in Europe. Uh, so we coordinate a lot with our Brazilian counterparts. That's the um, the uh, the space um, the space research um, institute in Brazil, um, and then my specific job was to coordinate all of the building um, and maintenance of the infrastructure. Uh, so we built um, towers, um, we built um, roads and base camps, and just really rudimentary type things that were necessary for um, conducting the research. Um, so it meant I, get, I got to spend a good amount of my time, maybe about a quarter of my time in Brazil. Um, most of that in the Amazon basin was a pretty great experience. Excellent. Yeah, what did I, yeah that's, that's like a bucket list trip yeah. for me. I would love to go down to the Amazon. What, what, what did you see that really amazed you when you were down there? Oh, I think the best was probably... Um, we had some we had some towers that you had to climb with equipment. Like I'm too much of a chicken to climb those. They were like 75, 65 meter towers. Um, but then there were ones that were like scaffold towers so that you could, you know, walk up staircases. Um, when you get to the top of those and you look out just above the canopy and you just see forever, um, that was pretty amazing. Wow. Yeah, it's it's a it's a bucket list uh, experience. <laughs> Absolutely. That is awesome. And then you spent eight years at the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Services in D.C. Yes. Yeah. After um, that project ended, I looked for a new opportunity and ended up um, at U.S. Customs and Border Protection um, working in their facilities management and engineering uh, directorate there. Um, eventually, um, over time, working on a myriad of projects, but uh, Probably the most significant for me was under uh, the Obama administration's um, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Uh, Customs and Border was awarded $420 million to, um, uh, to or appropriated rather, um, to update their land port of entry um, mm. uh, facilities along, most of them along the Canadian border, some along the border with Mexico. So um, I was charge of making sure that money was was spent, um, you know, in a manner that was uh, most efficient, and rebuilding a lot of these ports of entries that 
hadn't been updated since the 1940s. So, wow. Yeah. So not just the, the buildings, but everything. Yeah, the infrastructure, okay. making them ready for like new inspection technology, wow. um, post 9-11 inspection technology, and just really bringing them up to standard. A lot of them, um, you know, look like if you, if you, you could pass by them on the road and, and they're just like a little brick house or a lot of times people would think that they were like gas stations or something. Um, yeah, to bring them up to, to, to the standards and the, um, the realities of the world we live in. Wow. That must have been exciting. So you live up in the DC area. So you, you work for a lot of companies up in that area now. Um, how did those experiences prepare you for creating steel strategies? Yeah. So when I decided that I was ready to leave the government, um, you know, I really drew heavily upon my experiences, um, both in working for the working for the government, being involved in government um, acquisitions, and then also my technical experience as an engineer um, running facility portfolios, managing those portfolios um, to really start my, the, the services that my company offers. Um, we're highly focused on, um, on elevating uh, humanity through building organizations and places that do elevate humanity. And um, so we have focuses not just in the, the more technical areas of facility portfolio management um, and design standards, but also in um, what people usually term more of like the software skills um, of workplace strategy, um, including change management, um, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, um, and culture facilitation. And culture. Yeah. My background is in organizational change management. So I know mm -hmm. exactly what that is. And it is often looked at as a soft skill. But if you don't have organizational change management, if you don't have a strong culture, the diversity, inclusion, equity, and inclusion, that's that could ruin your business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the pandemic really has brought this to light, right? That mm -hmm. No longer are we working, looking at work as a place that we go, but what we do, the purpose of what we're doing, and the connections that we're making with others. Um, you know, the, the place, the physical place has, uh, for the most part, um, with today's knowledge workers, has very little to do um, with their actual work. So, yeah, it, it is... Um, bringing that focus into the people is uh, is critical for what we do today. And I think the pandemic, if anything good has come out of that, it's I think it's really shown a light shine a light on business um, that you know we need to start doing things differently yeah. and putting people first. Exactly. Yeah, and I think a lot of a lot of businesses they were under the the mindset of I have to see you. If you're not sitting in front of me working, you're obviously <laughs> up to no good. Yeah. Uh, kind of like my mom when we were growing up. You know, if I can't see you, you're probably doing something you shouldn't. And so they didn't like workers working remotely or working from home. 
They always wanted them right there in the office. And now that has changed, right? Right. Now we have so many folks that are, are working remotely and they've proven that they can be um, what productive at home. They can do this stuff at home. Absolutely. I mean, the, you know, obviously a lot of organizations are going back to um, meeting at a traditional office, whether it's, you know, one day a week or and for some organizations, five days a week or anywhere in between. Um, you know, this, the, the, the right, there is no one right answer. It's going to vary from organization to organization, from job type to job type. Um, you know, working remotely is something that's been around forever. Um, you know, if you look back, like if I look back on my career or Carlin or Harlan, you do the same, but you're going to, you're going to, and you think how much time did I sit sitting at my desk? Mm -hmm. And the answer is going to be very little. And for most of today's knowledge workers, that is absolutely the answer, you know? So we're used to doing work on an airplane. We're used mm -hmm. to being out in the field or meeting with other people, going to lunch meetings, that type of thing. Um, and one of, again, another, I think, great thing that has come out of the pandemic is really normalized being able to work like that. Um, that, you know, in fact, I, I'm more stationary now post pandemic and, you know, than I have ever been before I was constantly in my, my, my car was my office all day long, really. <laughs> Well, and I know on your website, you talk about designing the entire work experience from physical space to remote work. Yes. Are businesses now thinking, rethinking their workspace to have employees come back to the office? Uh, yes, I would say by and large, people are. Um, they're, I think they're reevaluating their real estate portfolio, their footprint. Um, they're bringing in some new considerations. So those new considerations might be fully remote work or, uh, or uh, hybrid work. Um, there's also, you know, more health con uh, considerations, um, uh, a, a lot more focus on things like, um, you know, contact tracing and um, understanding um, maybe workers who, who have been exposed to things like COVID and um, how, how to track that while also maintaining privacy. Um, the last thing that people want is to know that, the, or to, to, is to have their employers like tracking what they do all day, um, whether they're in the office or at home. So that's definitely of concern. Um, so I think a lot of, I think the jury's out on a lot of technologies that um, that are measuring uh, the work the workplace. Um, you know whether it's like desk sensors or room sensors, um, and trying to really figure out how to walk that line of using valuable information to keep their workforce healthy. Um, while also maintaining uh, privacy. Yeah. Yeah, because I know at, at first, a lot of businesses seem to use things like Teams 
as almost an ankle bracelet. If you're mm-hmm. not at your desk and you haven't moved your mouse in a while, you know, where are you? What are you doing? Yeah, that's always been a horrible way, though. You know, to manage by line of sight has always been a horrible way. And it's very much tied to these antiquated, you know, industrial revolution <laughs> type practices. In the United States, a lot of like the titans of industry use that kind of management. Um, you know, they had to, you know, of like looking down that um, that um, assembly line, mm-hmm. um, you know, those, there were a lot of practices put in place that to, um, to try to maximize efficiency and productivity. And I think it's probably up for debate and clearly some of those people use some egregious practices mm-hmm. toward their their uh, their labor units, but um, somehow along the way, those practices, that line of sight mentality really was translated into the knowledge workers of today um, and has been accepted form of, of management. Is it the best form of management when you're working with knowledge workers? Absolutely not. Um, you know, people who are going to be, I guess, uh, less productive and, you know, on, and sort of like the, the, the people who lag behind everyone else in productivity or maybe are like problematic um, employees, whether they're in front of you or whether they're at home behind a screen, it's gonna be the same. Um, as well as those super productive employees those things are part of who we are as people, um, how engaged we are in the work that we're doing, how included we feel in the organizations and teams that we're a part of. That's what, you know, that, that is what the focus needs to be on if we want to truly increase productivity and, and engagement among employees, not on whether your city, I mean, I could, everybody knows you could be sitting at your computer playing Tetris all day. (laughs) I actually have Tetris up on a separate monitor right now. Exactly. But what do you see happening in, in, in the, the businesses and stuff? Are they, are they moving away from the cubicles to more collaborative spaces? What are they? Yeah. So space right now is becoming much more purpose driven. So we saw, you know, in, um, you know, in the last 10 years or so, moving away from cubicles to, um, from assigned cubicles to unassigned space that's more open. Now organizations are really kind of taking a deeper look at that. I wouldn't say that um, there is like, one thing that stands head and shoulders above that, that, that people are sticking to open or they're going to more enclosed. I think they're really looking at how they're taking an honest look um, and and really understanding how people need to work. Um, being willing to think outside of the constraints that they normally do. You know, we've worked with so many clients in the past who, for instance, are very 
um, you know, beholden to, to paper, people who work with contracts and documents all day. And the first thing that that those organizations have said are, oh, we can't work remotely. Um, we all know now that, I mean, it almost seems ridiculous. I never work with paper. I don't know about you, Harlan. I think the only people I know that do work with paper are those people who just like love to have something tactile. And so um, to me, it just feels like a waste of paper and a waste of time. And it's just easier. You know, I, I rarely print anything out. Um, and so I think that if organizations, if what we really try to do is get in there and have try to break down sort of those constructs that we that a lot of people and organizations have built and really take a really good look of, well, you know, does it have to be this way? Can it be another way? There are a lot of great electronic tools out there. Can we maybe use some of those? And then surprisingly, or not surprisingly, you know, I think a lot of our clients find that they are more efficient. Um, that they're able to become more collaborative um, and do a better job and be more engaged in the work that they do because by being more, you know, having more flexibility at work, by being able to, to decide today I need to do X, Y, and Z, and I can do that best at home. And today I need to do some, today I need to go and brainstorm and man, I really get energy from being with other people and being in front of a whiteboard with sticky notes and all kinds of chaos going on. Um, so the best thing for me to do today is to go into an office where I can see a few of my um, coworkers and collaborate with them. Yeah. So the flexibility to be able to do that and to choose instead of arbitrary check the box, I did my two days in the office today with, you know, whether those two days in the office were spent doing concentrated work that you probably could have done better at home. And then maybe at home you sat on Zooms all day or vice versa, you know. Right. Um, we really need to look at what kind of work we're doing. And I think that that's what or the, the really good organizations and the ones who um, people are going to flock to and to be attracted to are going to be those ones who really take a purposeful look and don't make arbitrary determinations of, you know, what's good for me is good for you. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, like maybe you have a, a, a senior manager who is, you know, I'll just say like, you know, a white male with grandkids, um, you know, in their 60s and doesn't have, you know, kids at home anymore or people, other people that they're taking care of and likes to go to the office all day. And then you talk to somebody like me, I have an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old and, um, you know, they're much happier if they can walk in, uh, if I can meet them at the bus, mm -hmm. if I can drop them off at school. Um, I'm much happier if I don't have to rush home and spend an extra hour and a half in the car that day um, before I 
you know, drive them around to practices and lessons and things like that. So, sure. But then engaging a company like yours where you talk through this with them, right? You help them Absolutely. understand how the space can be used, should be used. Um, do you guys yeah. interview the employees too to get their input? Absolutely. So our approach is very, as I've said before, is very human centric and it's very simple. So our, um, so most of my, uh, most of my employees have a background either in interior design, architecture, engineering. And what we really do is focus on, uh, we really focus on, um, on listening. And so our approach is often to go in and, you know, maybe receive from the organization and the initial, um, the initial like leaders who have, con- you know, have reached out to us and asked for help, gotten a basic understanding of what their objectives are, why they're coming to us, what their current processes and procedures are. We spend a little time like looking at that, understanding what the lay of the land, but we try to do that, you know, with an open mind, reserving judgment. And then we really, from that point, just like to jump in and we meet with um, cohorts of executive leadership, of management, and then of, um, you know, the staff um, at large. And we usually like to meet with them you know, in groups of 12 to 15 people and have structured, facilitated conversations um, about what their needs are. And we do that by asking, you know, predetermined sets of questions um, and listening and documenting and then coming back and picking out what the general themes are that we hear. Um, And reporting back to the executive leadership, letting them know what we're hearing. Most, I would say the majority of executive leaders will say that they understand their people and they know what they want. And that, the, there have been rare occasions where we find where we really were where leaders are really in tune with their staff, but those are very rare cases. And in the majority, and I'll venture 90 to 95% of the time, there are surprises. Um, And what I and my team really look for in the ideal client is somebody who's willing to listen to those surprises of what they need, of what their employees are saying, what they're saying about work, what they're saying about what they're experiencing at work, how they feel they can do their work better, and then trying from that point forward, um, trying to come up with uh, recommendations and um, that recommendations that we can co-create with that organization. Nobody knows the organization better than they do. So we really believe in co-creation and to find um, strategies that they can put in place, whether it be with their physical space or how they work and how they interact with each other. Nice. Yeah, it's absolutely important to, to get all that stuff out. And you've got that diverse team to help. 
regardless, whatever it is, if it's physical space or, or the employees, right, the culture and everything like that, yep, you've got absolutely. the folks to do that. Yeah. Is there a certain sector or segment that you work with now? So we're really spread across a lot of, of sectors right now. So initially, we did most of our work in the federal government sector. Um, over the past few years, we've really expanded um, where we um, have done a lot of work in the private sector, especially um, in the uh, technology sector. And then we've also branched out into doing a lot more work with local and state governments as well. Nice. And so when did you start Steel Strategies? Yeah, in 2015. So we're coming up, actually, the seven-year anniversary is coming up in a couple of weeks in May. So. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, So talking about courage, you had some great jobs working in in the government or for the government, right? These different um, entities and everything like that. How was that transition then to your own business, becoming the entrepreneur? Where did you find the courage to say, yeah, that would be comfortable. I could do that again. There's probably other offers that you had on the table. Where did you find the courage to say, I'm going to do this on my own? Yeah, I think a lot of, at least for me, um, well, a, a couple of things. I grew up in a household where my dad became an entrepreneur when I was, you know, in my early teens. So I was definitely um, familiar with, I think, the courage, the, um, the risk <laughs> that it takes to do that. Um, for many years, I was pretty, I actually, I would say for most of my career, I never really imagined that I would want that or need that in my own career. Um, it wasn't really until I reached a point within the organization where I was very dissatisfied with, um, what I perceived to be a lack of of control, of the control, which I, I felt like I had to cede control of my career to others. Um, and what I mean by that is that I felt like I had to, you know, I, I could work hard. I could advocate for myself. I could be the best employee, the best manager, the most innovative person. But at the end of the day, I was really beholden to like the bureaucracy. I was beholden to other people's um, attitudes or viewpoints toward me, what they thought of me, what their priorities were personally and within the organization. And it really started to rub me in a way where I was like, I'm just not satisfied with this anymore. Uh, Simultaneously, you know, as I was feeling all of those things, and this came at, at, by the way, like probably one of the most inopportune times in my life. At the time I had like a one-year-old and, and a, t- a three-year-old, like mm. I wouldn't say that like that's the ideal time to start a business, but <laughs> um, anyway, I, you know, I was, I had been talking with a friend who's on, who's an entrepreneur and kind of got a lot of encouragement um, uh, from him. Um, you know, hey, you can do this. Hey, let's do this together. Um, we did end up going into business together initially. 
Um, I then um, took over the business 100% um, uh, a few years a, a few years ago. Um, but it was really through I think that encouragement, somebody at the time saying like, I can I can help. Um, I can be a partner with you. Um, ended up as things went along that I felt like that I really didn't want to do it with a partner, that I wanted to do it on my own. Um, so working through that as well. Um, so so it almost is like there was this piece of having to work up that courage and having to work up that um, that risk tolerance, really. And then also in a way, I wouldn't say hitting rock bottom. I, I, by no stretch of the imagination had I hit rock bottom, but I had, I guess I had, was reaching that point of dissatisfaction with where I was, that I was willing and open to other ideas. Yeah. And that's what got me there. No, and that's sometimes that's what it takes. Yeah. You know, but like you said, seeing the, the example of entrepreneur, you know, and the entrepreneurial uh, way and the mindset and everything like that, having that as a model, that's pretty yeah. good. And it's, even one of the lessons that I take today, and I feel like being an entrepreneur is, and I think some of it ha boils down to like luck, network, connections, hard work, those types of things. Absolutely. I don't want to like discount any of those things. Sure. Privilege, all of those things go factor into the equation. But I would say that the number one thing that I've had to learn as an entrepreneur is how to tolerate risk. And I almost feel like that is like the secret that entrepreneurs are keeping from the rest of the world. Otherwise, everybody under the sun would be an entrepreneur. Um, clearly, that's not going to happen. And this is not obviously like an exact science or theory that I have, but I really feel like that if you can learn how to tolerate risk, you can be an entrepreneur. Uh, yeah, because that is, you have to be risk tolerant. You have to be able to say, you know, I, I'm going to step out here. I mean, stepping out on your own is scary. It's definitely scary. You don't have that safety net that you did, you know, working for a, a company or anything like that. You have to be able to look at those risks and, and weigh them, you know, worst case scenario, what's going to happen. And, can I continue? Can I survive that? Right. I invest my money in this and it blows up. Can I live? Yeah. I'll go back to work, you know, yeah. but you have to be able to, to say, I'm, I'm okay falling down because I know I can stand back up. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was just having lunch with some of my colleagues from conscious capitalism here in DC yesterday. And, you know, we're, we were talking about something similar along these lines, but I think the the antidote that I the anecdote that I took away from the conversation, um, which um, one person said, and then the rest like heartily agreed, was that you know like you just keep swimming for the shore, yeah. like you know nothing's going to be perfect. They're going to be um, you know it's really easy to look at like the success stories and to compare yourself to that. Sure. Um, to those success stories, but you just, you just got to keep swimming. Um, and if you do that and you're willing, you know, you're willing to be out there in the ocean on your own, you know, you can make great things happen. And it's, it's something that has been, you know, extremely 
satisfying to me as Absolutely. a person. So. Absolutely. So how many folks do you have working for you? So right now we have full-time employees. We have 10 and then we have several consultants also that work for us. Nice. And I saw on your website, you have a career section there. You've got some folks you're looking for to fill those slots. Absolutely. Yeah. We are really focused right now on, on growth, um, both in the commercial sector and the government sectors. So yeah, right now we're really actually looking for some great salespeople. Um, sure. So if anybody out there is listening. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I will definitely have a link to your, your website in the show notes. If I was to bump into any of your employees and ask them what type of leader you are, what would they tell me? Any of the employees you have now, the employees you used to have, if I asked them what kind of leader you are, what would they say? What kind of leader are you? Um, I would say, I feel like I'm cheating because I just recently did a um, leadership 360 assessment. <laughs> nice. So one of the things I learned about myself is that my employees and my other colleagues out there perceive me as being a compassionate and caring leader. Nice. That's important. And I having that doing that 360 every once in a while to find out because a lot of, I think leaders say, this is what I think I am or what I want to be. And if you don't ask, you don't know that you're actually doing this or you're missing this point. Yeah. You know, you have to be able to, to ask questions and, and make those tweaks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, there are the areas that, you know, that I'm, I'm strong in. And then it also, you have to be open as a leader to look at those areas where you're not strong in and understand how your how my behaviors um, and my actions um, impact others mm -hmm. and how they're perceived by others and how that can really impact the organization as a whole, my Absolutely. progress as a leader and, and the viability of the company. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause you're kind of the, the role model for them. They're looking at you to see what you're doing and, and following along. Um, one of the types of courage we talk about a lot on the, on the program is um, intellectual courage. The, the courage to set aside your long-held beliefs, to set aside the, the knowledge that you have to make room for new knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that's part of it, being open and saying, hey, I don't know. Tell me, help me, you know, show me. Because yeah. you, you can learn a lot from that. And it encourages your employees then to be more forthcoming with ideas or, or thoughts that they may have. Yeah, that's one thing that we are really focused on right now. I mentioned, you know, growth, but I don't just mean growth in terms of revenues and sales. I'm talking about, you know, having growth mindsets and, and trying to instill that in the, the culture and the fabric of who we are at Steel Strategies. So it's something that we talk about a lot. Um, we also really challenge our employees to... Um, get vulnerable in a lot of ways that I don't think, um, I don't think most organizations, particularly in the United States today, ask their employees to get vulnerable. Um, you know, whether it's talking about new ways of learning um, and, uh, or whether we're talking about, you know, talking about uncomfortable topics like, um, like race and, and um, gender issues and things like that. Um, so we really ask our people to, to, um, to have, to develop to the extent that we can that mindset to be open to those things. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Especially these days. Yes. Yeah. I think that's, that's critical. So what's next for you? I mean, you've done so much by the Amazon for gosh sakes. Um, <laughs> what else? What's, what's next? What's next? Um, well, I'd like more of that. Um, uh, I, I definitely, you know, want to continue growing the capabilities in the business, um, looking at how we can stay relevant. So many, so many of our skills are like what I like to call bread and butter skills. You know, civil engineering, um, not necessarily like a fancy, sexy sort of like thing. You know, it's it's really like the uh, no pun intended nuts and bolts and you know the bread and butter of things. Um, and then you know the soft skills or the so-called soft skills, which I'll I'll say the people skills, the mm-hmm. cultural things. Um, you know, those are just so simple, and they just um, really you know, kind of speak to the heart. There's nothing, um, there's no rocket science, so to speak, behind behind any of this. But what I'd like to do um, and what we are striving to do to be relevant in this sometimes confusing, crazy and confusing world which we live in is to really ensure that we're um, that we are lining up with like the best technology out there that will really serve um, our clients the best. You know, one thing that we are partnered with a, a wonderful company now that we are starting a partnership with is looking at how we can use virtual virtual um, reality gaming games to mm-hmm. learn and create experiences. Um, DEI or culture experiences for people at work, um, and and you know using that new technology, which has which is so impactful on our retention and learning and the stickiness that that um, those experiences have in each of our hearts and minds um, is so impactful. So looking at tools like that that we can really help bring to um, our clients uh, to help them um, not have the shiny new toy per se, but to really be able to uh, to evolve to affect change better than what, what they have been doing and what we've been doing as a culture. Nice. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff out there. Yeah. And on top of that, I, I, of course, you mentioned the Amazon. So, you know, personally, more travel, um, more, you know, quality time with my family and, um, you know, getting, staying in touch with, you know, the human that I am outside of work. (laughs) Absolutely. Very cool. Well, Anne, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, for taking time out. Um, if people want to learn more about you and about steel strategies, um, how can they do that? What's your website? Yeah. So they can look us up at www.steelstrat. That's S T E E L E S T R A T.com. You can also hit me up on LinkedIn. Excellent. And I will have those links in the show notes for everybody. 
So yeah, good All job. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Harlan. Appreciate it. All right. All right, listeners, hope you guys were taking a lot of notes, a lot of good takeaways here. Um, definitely check out steelstrat.com. Um, check out their career page, just in case you're in sales and stuff like that to help them grow. And uh, yeah, good stuff. Make sure you share this episode with your family, friends, and colleagues, and stick around because there's always more coming. That's it for me. Coach Harlan saying so long for now.